Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill, and this is the Monthly Investment Roundtable. This podcast brings together various investment professionals here at Diamond Hill to discuss relevant and timely topics spanning domestic, international, and fixed income markets. On today's episode, I'm joined by Grady Burkett, Tim Myers, and Henry Song. Grady Burkett is an international and global equity portfolio manager and has been with the firm since 2014. Tim Myers is Diamond Hill's Consumer Staples Research Analyst, recently celebrated his five-year anniversary at Diamond Hill, and is a fellow alum from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Henry Song is the co-portfolio manager on Diamond Hill's core bond and short duration strategies, and also recently celebrated his five-year anniversary at Diamond Hill. Grady, Tim, and Henry are joining me today on the podcast to discuss the impact of the pandemic on the consumer and the companies that rely on the consumer. We continue to work through the pandemic with some of us in the office and some of us at home. So I ask for your forgiveness for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy our new investment roundtable. Gentlemen, I wanna welcome you to the inaugural episode of the investment roundtable, a series where we'll bring together various members of the Diamond Hill Investment Management Team spending domestic and international equities, as well as fixed income. The goal is to bring together various perspectives from within the firm around a common topic, sharing our thoughts and ideas with our clients. For this first episode, we're going to talk about the consumer and the impact of COVID-19, whether it's on spending habits, debt management, or trends that we're seeing. With regards to the equity market, we'll discuss firms directly exposed to or impacted by the shift in consumer sentiment, and expectations for the ongoing reopening process. For the fixed income standpoint, we'll look at how the consumer has managed their debt load during lockdowns as well as coming out of lockdowns. I'll start with a question for one of you and welcome comments from the other members of the group sharing your unique perspectives. So Grady, I'm gonna start with you. One of the things that, that we've discussed in the past is the impact of the last 18 months on consumer discretionary spending and the impact on companies in that sector. How about we start there and get your thoughts uh, on that topic just to get started? Sure. I, I, broadly, the obvious uh, thing that's happened over the last 18 months is we saw a sharp decline in consumer spending and anything discretionary oriented during the co initial lockdowns in March. Uh, we saw a slow recovery through 2020, and then we've seen a pretty rapid bounce back in 2021. Uh, if I look at the holdings in the international portfolio and kind of bucket them into a few groups, uh, we can look at the luxury companies we own, such as Richmond, uh, Louis Vuitton, and a portion of Swatch's portfolios. And uh, the luxury goods sector certainly had pretty sharp declines uh, last year, but we've seen really good recoveries in those businesses. And the recoveries have been, the more luxury uh, the business is, the, the, the sharper the recovery seems to have been. And certainly in mainland China and uh, across Asia Pacific, we've seen particularly strong uh, rebounds. Um, and then the other, the, the, the next group I would categorize as sort of food, food and beverage, and anything related to food and beverage and, and international. So for us, that's AB InBev, uh, Diageo, or two big spirits companies that I would categorize as discretionary, although some might debate that. Um, and then we also Encompass Group, which is a food service operator. And again, it's one of those where during uh, 2020, um, while spirit sales were up in, in households, obviously people weren't going to bars. And so you had a decline in the beverage sold through the, through the restaurant and bar channel, 
but you also had some increases in, in uh, household consumption or drinking at home, basically. Uh, and so those businesses also saw pretty sharp declines uh, last year, not as bad as the luxury space, um, but they're also seeing pretty good rebounds right now uh, this year. And again, that's, that seems to be the case across most uh, geographies. Uh, Compass uh, Group is a special case because obviously they're tied to catering services, sporting events, um, but they also have hospi hospital businesses, school businesses. And so their business was essentially, it, half of it was shut down uh, last year. And right now they're at about 85% uh, capacity utilization. So they've seen a good re recovery in the schools, you know, some of those types of uh, places where they, where they uh, provide services. And they're just starting to see a recovery in like sporting events. So I think they said they were at 35% uh, capacity in their sporting events business. So um, that's the other piece. And then the final piece is sort of anything related to travel um, and, uh, and, and getting out and doing things. And I think that's where we're probably, I, personally, I think we're going to get to a point where consumer behaviors are similar to where they were in 2018 and 19, but I think we've got a ways to go there. So we're still seeing some, you know, we're still seeing not, not back to pre-pandemic levels for some of the like airlines, airport operators, uh, theme parks, things like that. Yeah, maybe I'd just add quick on the domestic side in terms of spending on um, MySpace, consumer staples, everyday products. Um, you've seen, you know, quite a trade up in terms of, uh, you know, the quality of products consumers are buying. Um, you know, you've seen a shift away from private label brands or store branded products to more, um, you know, premium offerings, you know, kind of across the, the spectrum or basket of goods. Um, you've also seen, you know, just from, you know, more of a macro consumer um, reevaluating what's important. And you've seen a, a focus on health, wellness, um, you know, purchases and a focus on convenience and, um, you know, omni-channel or e-commerce, you've had quite an acceleration there, you know, over the last 18 months, you know, you've, you've seen many of these, uh, you know, big businesses had, you know, 5% of sales coming through e-commerce, you know, in 2018, 2019, now that's, you know, 12, 15, 20% of sales now coming through, um, you know, whether it's omni-channel or e-commerce and, you know, just thinking about that, you know, what the snapback on that looks like, or, you know, is that the new normal? Um, still kind of early to tell, but, um, you know, just now as we're kind of cycling some of the original uh, pantry loading, it, it seems like some of the behaviors have been a little sticky, at least on the everyday product uh, purchase cycles. Um, so that's kind of what we're seeing on the domestic side right now. Thank you, Tim, for that. I appreciate the follow-up on Grady's comment. Uh, you know, let's shift the conversation to fixed income. Don't want to leave Henry out of the conversation uh, and stay focused on the consumer. And when people think fixed income, they may tend to think of corporate debt, U.S. treasuries, but there's a segment of the market that has a heavy focus on the consumer and consumer-related products, and that would be the asset-backed securities market. Uh, this area of the market provides insight into how well the consumer is managing their own debt load uh, by examining payment habits and consumer unsecured debt, auto loans, and a variety of other areas. Henry, what sort of insight did you gather about the consumer during the early days of the pandemic and how they were handling their various monthly payments? Yeah, it's kind of just to echo back what, you know, Grady and Tim talk about, we kind of seen the same type of effect playing out in the debt space uh, to the extent, you know, like there were slowdown in spending, uh, which just means people actually have more money on their hands. Uh, in the very early days, I mean, I think, you know, there was shock in the system. People weren't sure 
whether they'll have a job or not, what's going on. So, so I will kind of put the consumer in the two buckets. The one bucket is people who, you know, kind of like us, just went to work in the office to work from home, but they never really had any uh, income interruption. Uh, for that type of consumer, they're, you know, they stopped going to the movie theater, stopped going out to eat, uh, you know, probably didn't spend as much money, weren't sure what's happening. Uh, but very quickly, this segment of the consumer basically figured out that, you know, they, they're actually saving a lot of money now monthly. Uh, things will be okay. They're not going to lose their job. Uh, and, and, you know, some small segment in this market that had a lot of debt. You know, if you think about like recent grads out of school, you know, they have pretty good income, uh, but they don't have a huge amount of savings yet. Uh, and some of them might even qualify for some of the government assistance. So they're actually pocketing extra income during this time. So what we have seen is this segment of the consumer actually start paying down their debt really rapidly. It's a great deleveraging on, on, their, on their part. Uh, so this segment of the consumer are the huge beneficiary of uh, what happened last year. And the other segment of the market struggle a little bit more. It's the people that were laid off right off the bat, right? Their company laid them off and they were living off of the uh, government assistance. And so most of them applied for you know, all sorts of modification programs to delay paying their debt or to reduce the interest rate on the debt. Um, and the companies were very accommodative to kind of keeping them uh, afloat because, you know, in the debt space, uh, you, you want to work with consumers, right? You, you don't want to write, write them off right away. Even if it means you collect less interest, what have you, you, you don't want to just write them off right away. Uh, so this segment of the population, most of them enter into the debt relief program and a few months later, when these program ended, it was pretty telling which part of the which part of these guys uh, lost their jobs for good, and which part got rehired. Because you, you can think about some of this, some of the sectors that got impacted, that laid off people initially, but a few months later, the the companies kind of figured out, okay, well, we got a government bailout money, we can actually, you know, the PPP program and others, uh, these companies say, okay, you know, we can we can keep uh, we can hire these people back. Uh, so those those consumers tend to perform pretty well. So really, depending on the type of consumers uh, that were involved in some of these deals to begin with, uh, you know, it, it's a, either a very small percentage of these consumers that just kind of lost their job for good, or a larger percentage, maybe upwards of like ten percent in some of these deals. That that's kind of what we gather from the debt side. It's you know, it, it's a story of the two halves: the, the halves that pay down the debt quickly. Uh, and the have-nots has really lost their ability to pay debt. Thanks for that, Henry. Uh, you mentioned it as well. I'll stay with it. The success of working from home uh, for a portion of the economy, I would say. Um, combine that with the consumer's ability to have whatever they need delivered to them directly. Uh, and I'll, I'll shift to, to Grady and Tim. Has this altered the landscape of the consumer business model? Or do you expect a return to some kind of a normalcy you know, once we're on the other side of this pandemic? Um, yeah, no, that's a great question, Doug. And it's kind of, I mean, we talked about it a little bit with uh, the podcast we recorded back in the beginning of the pandemic, breaking up with uh, habits. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, now we're about four or 500 days out from, you know, when we all went home uh, from Diamond Hill. And, you know, they, on average, it takes the normal consumer about 65, 66 days to form, you know, a habit. Um, you know, so right now trying to understand, you know, the consumer behaviors and what the stickiness is um, and habit formation, you know, when it comes to everyday products. I mean, like we said earlier, e-commerce, omni-channel, health and wellness trends, um, 
you know, to me, I think that some of these behaviors will be a little sticky longer term. And you've seen, I mean, a, a big portion of the businesses that I, I'm responsible for covering, you know, really emphasizing omni-channel, uh, their e-commerce business, digital marketing, um, making their brands more accessible to consumers, you know, wherever that consumer chooses to go. Um, so at least, you know, right now where we are, and we're still not out of this yet, but, um, you know, at least that's how the companies have been reacting, um, you know, with the, you know, the consumer and where the consumer has been going. Yeah, I, I mean, just to give a, a, I agree, I agree with Tim that um, companies are going to have to or have been adjusting their business models. And I think one thing that's interesting is the companies that had um, the resources to adjust their business models seem to have moved faster uh, as a result of the pandemic in many cases. And so um, you, we own Tesco, which is sort of an old school uh, grocery store operator in the UK. And, uh, you know, certainly they've been under pressure by discounters and then the, the, the online and delivery service market is an issue. But actually, they've been investing really aggressively in their sort of e-commerce business. And that can mean pick up at the store, have the groceries delivered. Uh, they bought a, a supply chain company called Booker that could help them with that, uh, with, with them getting better distribution, ability to deliver groceries. And actually, right now, they have more higher market share in the online space uh, than, the, than the physical space in the UK. And so that's one example. I mean, another example here in the US, obviously, is Disney. Um, you saw them um, you know, just stop paying a dividend so that they could really increase the amount of content they were creating for their streaming business. And obviously, they saw their parks collapse. And they were already under pressure from Netflix and other streaming services. And try to get maintain the consumer's attention and um, you just saw them sort of accelerate investment into that and so I think um, you know for us if we have a company that isn't choosing to adopt to some of these new trends and some of them as Tim I agree with Tim some for some people it will stick for some people they'll go back to their old habits but certainly a portion of the consumer is going to be you know having new habits and if companies can't adopt to that or haven't shown a willingness to make some changes to their business model you know, that, that, that makes you a little more nervous about that particular business, I think. So I'm going to combine uh, two things and ask all three of you uh, about, you know, the impact on, you know, the companies that you're covering or Henry, in your case, you know, the, the securities that you're looking at. Um, but one of the things that we continually hear about um, in the news, which I, again was in the news today about this ongoing chip shortage, how it's going to impact the global economy. So combine that for maybe some specific things, but then more broadly, you know, what we're seeing in this demand supply imbalance, uh, and anecdotally, I, I got an email or an update yesterday from Costco saying that you, if you order toilet paper from Costco, expect it to be very, very delayed in when you'll actually receive it. Um, so it's not the toilet paper shortage early in the pandemic, but it's still this supply chain issue that we continue to see. So you know, Tim and Grady, how are you seeing companies that, that you've covered impacted from the shortage? And, and Henry, from your standpoint, you know, what are you seeing in the auto industry uh, and what may occur if we continue to see this shortage? And, and uh, Henry, let's start with you and then we can, we can go to Tim and Grady. Well, it's even more than, uh, you know, just the auto industry that's been impacted, right? You're talking about the shortage. Uh, you know, one of the, I would call more off the run type of a small sector in the asset back space is actually container ships. Um, these are securitized by all the containers that's coming, you know, that's, you know, making the global supply chain work and the container rates, some of them are up tenfold at this point. 
uh, in the securities market, you know, this is something that was historically really shunned by most investors. It's, you know, fav oftentimes favored by uh, insurance company as a buy and hold type of assets. Uh, we, we have seen, you know, record low spreads on those sectors. Uh, pretty much every single container operator refi their debt between 2020, 2021 to take advantage of the low rates and uh, you know, the ongoing demand for this type of securities. People are viewing these as you know, some of the best things out there now because of this. Um, so that, you know, that's one. And, you, know, the, you talk about mentioned auto industry, uh, you know, used car sales price is still at record highs right now. I think dip, finally dipped a little bit uh, as a shortage of some of these supplies issues getting resolved, but you know, it will re remain elevated. Uh, as people still need cars to get around and to replace their older cars. Uh, so with this sort of shortage, you know, used car prices stay elevated. It's certainly helping uh, the recovery value in any of the auto deals. Uh, residual value off of lease deals are much higher now than what they have ever been. So that's helping all the lease deals as well. Uh, so from, you know, collateral perspective, uh, all of the deals that's been uh, issued out in the market, you can basically just say that the collateral values are way higher than where it have ever been. So it's been a huge boost for, uh, for um, anything that's backed by, uh, you know, hard collateral, uh, especially if that collateral is hard to source currently. Yeah, I'd say um, just this past week or so, we had a conversation with a major food producer here uh, in the U.S. and, you know, container ships came up. Um, you know, and said, you essentially just can't, you can't find containers. Um, you know, it's, it's very tight right now. Um, you know, in terms of microchip, I don't know the impact. I mean, it, it flows through to the producers, food producers, HPC, um, cosmetics, everything. But, um, you know, the, the issue, you know, at least the conversations I'm having, it's all on supply chain right now. Whereas, you know, those were conversations you never have with CEOs. You know, it's all about, can we get product there? Um, and really it's coming down to labor, um, you know, labor is, you know, manufacturing very tight right now. Um, it's shipping, trucking, um, very tight. And that's causing a lot of pressure on supply chains, um, kind of across, you know, from the paper packaging, uh, players into, you know, the actual, um, brand manufacturers and, you know, all the way to, you know, the, the grocery stores. So, um, Honestly, no end in sight. Most are, you know, projecting this to continue, you know, for the foreseeable future, um, you know, at least over the next 12 months or so um, as they're guiding out and talking about the next year or so. Uh, but yeah, very, very tight on the labor side um, right now. Yeah, I just say specific to semiconductors, uh, we own Samsung and, and Taiwan Semi and the strategy. So, um, you know what? Uh, there's certainly tightness, a lot of tightness, and there's a lot of shortages. And but um, the memory industry and Taiwan Semi, which is the largest um, outsourced manufacturer of semiconductors, they've all increased their capital spending substantially over the last couple of years. Certainly this year in particular. And um, so right now we're definitely going to see cost pressure. So we're going to see ASP pressure on chips. And there's two different sides. On the memory side, they were working through some supply overhang uh, going into the pandemic. And so they've worked through that overhang and now we'll probably see some increases in average selling prices for, for memory, certainly DRAM and probably NAND. Um, Taiwan Semi was another story though, because they've always managed their capital capacity utilization very tightly because they dominate the industry. And so there we're seeing true shortages, manufacturing shortages for a lot of these chips. I believe that many of these shortages, particularly automotive, will be cleared up by uh, by the end of this, you know, into 2022. 
um, but there's probably going to be some lingering effect there. Um, what will be interesting to see what happens in 2023 and 2024 for this industry as all that capacity come has come online and um, you know how that affects pricing then. But you know, right now I think it it was for for Taiwan Semi in the manufacturing industry costs were already going up because it was it gets harder and harder to manufacture these smaller chips. And so this is now you're getting you know labor pressure, shipping pressure, you know supply chain bottlenecks. So you've got even more cost pressure on these companies. So even though you're seeing price increases from Taiwan Semi, they've actually had some gross margin pressure as a result of all this cost inflation that they're seeing. I think the I think it was you know everyone talk about the labor shortage. Uh, I think sometimes the mainstream media focus a lot on the labor shortage in the U.S. But I think we have to keep in mind when we talk about consumer products. A lot of these things are not manufactured in the U.S. And we tend to forget that, you know, especially where these manufacturing hubs are like China, Vietnam, Thailand, they're still dealing with very low vaccination rates. Uh, you know, countries like Thailand and Vietnam are not expected to be uh, getting to a high level of vaccination for quite some time because they are just waiting on supplies of vaccines. Uh, so, you know, I think that's something we, we need to keep in mind as well. Uh, I know recently, but when Vietnam had a little shutdown uh, with this and everybody home again, that caused a lot of issues too. So that, that's, that's not going to be resolved anytime soon. Uh, you know, this, who knows? I don't know if it's going to be resolved in 2022, really. So we, we can expect this sort of backlog for quite some time. And, yeah, I just want to chime in here on the labor side too, because the other side is what type of labor force your company uh, has to deal with. And so um, going back to Taiwan Semi and semiconductors, obviously this is a very specialized set of skills that these employees have. And so I think one thing is, you know, there's a lot of like China, the Chinese government is making a big push to try to increase its uh, market share of the semiconductor industry across the industry. But it gets harder and harder as you have to, you know, try to attract and recruit these really talented people. So I think you can look at that, you know, going back to Disney, you know, a lot, a lot of the things that make great, the people that make great content are, you know, highly specialized people who are sought after. So I start to think about like, how can new entrants really make a dent into some of these market share leaders for, for businesses that, that require very specialized workforces? So you guys have just mentioned the distribution of vaccines, um, specifically in, in Asia, but, you know, thinking here and, and I guess globally as well, we thought that the distribution of vaccines was going to lead to more of a, a reopening of travel and affiliated businesses. And we, we did see that a little bit in the summer. Uh, and then the Delta variant has, has kind of shifted those plans. So how have companies like Intercontinental, and we've already talked about Disney quite a bit, but we can stay on them. How have they been able to adjust to the ups and downs of quick reopening and then more of a slowing down? And will this kind of activity continue? Yeah, I mean, for Intercontinental, the big, big hotel operator, obviously, I mean, it's a franchise model uh, primarily. And so um, while they had significant revenue declines during the downturn, um, fortunately, at the corporate level, that was, you know, they were able to manage the free cash flow impact. And I think um, last, I think when they were down 55, their, their room revenue was down 55%, but they were still generating positive free cash flow. And so it's really case by case. Compass Group, which is the food service operator, they had bigger issues. They actually had to issue equity at the downturn because they were worried about what they were seeing back in March. Um, and so it just really comes down to what, what you know, the variable cost structure of the business that you that you own. And I mean, I think you look at like we owned Copa into the downturn, um, you know, large Latin American airline. Obviously, they have a high fixed cost structure, so there's not as much they can do about that. They can manage their workforce, but even there, you've got 
um, a pretty sticky labor force for those for those guys. Um, we have Grupa Air, uh, Airporto, uh, Mexican airport operator with camp, big big airport in Cancun. Um, again, a hot, pretty high fixed cost structure there, so they just had to kind of wait it through and see demand return. Um, so just case by case, business by business, yeah. And Henry, I'll, I'll pivot to you. Uh, you know, thoughts about one of the areas that we've looked at more recently is a commercial mortgage-backed securities area. And, and, you know, we talk about accommodations and hospitality and, and maybe the difference between a trophy property and other types of hotels. What have you seen there just in the last 12 to 18 months and, and what kind of opportunities maybe exist? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the theme there really is uh, people want to travel for leisure. Uh, so there's demand for you know, leisure hotels, uh, business travel, or, you know, business travel is in, in question, right? Like, what would it look like going forward? Uh, so those sort of properties are uh, not operating as well, and you see more defaults there. But a lot of times it really comes down to the sponsor and uh, their equity situation, kind of to what Grady mentioned, some of the companies able to manage their cash flow. Same with a lot of these uh, real estate sponsors. If the sponsor have plenty of cash and they believe in the assets, if it's a matter of, of raising equity or issuing extra debt to you know, hold on to it for another year, uh, I think people are doing that. Uh, the, the type of properties you've seen people giving up are the properties people are not sure whether it's needed or not going forward. Um, you know, Leisure Hotel, I've seen a pretty big rebound when, when people start traveling again. I mean, obviously the demand on that's going to ebb and flow a little bit given the, you know, the Delta variants or maybe future variants that may arise. Uh, but people are feeling pretty good that the long-term trend is people want to travel. People want to go to Hawaii. They want to go to these uh, cool places and spend money there. Right. So people are really bullish on those sort of assets. Uh, you know, you would honestly wouldn't surprise me. These assets will actually trade at higher valuation today than you did pre pre COVID uh, because people have even more of a belief in these assets now than before. Uh, so that, you know, that's kind of what we are seeing in the commercial mortgage backed security, you know, as especially relates to uh, consumers. Um, the other other sector that's kind of related to all of this is the uh, aircraft a ABS. Uh, that's, you know, again, that the demand's kind of ebbing ebb and flow quite a bit. Um, you've seen some smaller airlines struggle because those are, you know, again, initially there were, you know, these are uh, leisure bound aircrafts, uh, but, you know, that, that might change too. Uh, I think the unfortunate part is some of the smaller uh, operators had to kind of close down initially because they just didn't have the cash. It's such a capital intensive business. Uh, they, they needed the cash and they couldn't raise the money at the worst possible time. Uh, but going forward, you know, I think it's still pretty bullish on anything that's really leisure oriented uh, business travel. I mean, I think the airlines obviously have to maybe getting off topic here, but they have to obviously restructure their uh, their business model a little bit. You know, the big airlines that's dependent on business travelers, uh, they may have to optimize that and focus more on leisure travelers. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going to see changes going forward. And just tied just tie something Henry said earlier about the fact that you had two populations, the population just kind of did their job from home, saved some money, you know, was able to, you know, save some money as a result, and then also probably started to feel a little bit uh, a desire to, to get back out at some point in the future. Um, what, you know, so they have more money and this desire to maybe get back out. So that probably is going to support the leisure travel. Um, that's my expectation. And then also we even saw the luxury goods brands. I mean, they were they, they were raising prices at the high end, Louis Vuitton, 
Rishma, Swatch, the high end of their brands, they were raising prices through 2020. And so, you know, there, there is a segment of the population that seems, you know, ready and willing to, to, to splurge. Um, and already was, it already has been, so. So Tim, we'll end on, on I guess, a, a more of a high note. Um, you cover alcohol sales in the United States. Um, you know, why don't you let us know what, who, I guess, was the big winner last year during lockdown? Who came out ahead of, of everyone else? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting, you know, when you just you shut down the on-premise occasion, you know, and it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier on, um, you know, in terms of trade-up. You know, you saw, you know, people had a lot of money on the sidelines. They weren't spending out at, you know, festivals or concerts or, you know, movies or sporting events. And they were spending it, you know, not all of it, but, you know, they were certainly spending on trading up within, you know, alcohol spirits, um, total beverage alcohol, really. I mean, you saw, you know, shipped up to, you know, import beers like Modelo, Pacifico, um, and even, you know, within total beverage alcohol shipped up to spirits and cocktails at home, um, you know, cocktails in a can and, you know, seltzers did well, you know, um, you know, that first summer of COVID uh, was kind of the summer of seltzer, but, you know, in, in recent, you know, weeks and months, we've seen that really fall off, um, you know, which has been interesting to watch. Um, you've probably seen stuff in the press about, you know, seltzers, you know, falling off, but you've had kind of a shift to, um, you know, ready to drink cocktails in a can, you know, like a high noon or something along those lines, uh, which have done very well. Um, so that, that's kind of what we've seen. And again, it's been, you know, over the last, you know, this past summer and, you know, um, as we've had kind of reopenings and then closures and reopenings and closures, um, it's been interesting to kind of watch, you know, the gravitation back to on-premise and then, you know, back to kind of that everyone comfortable in their home drinking wine or, you know, making their cocktail. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens here as, you know, things progress, but that's kind of what we've seen so far. All right. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, it's been enlightening. I really appreciate you coming along for the ride. Uh, we've learned some stuff about the consumer and it's not all gloomy and there's some, some rays of light. So appreciate you guys coming on board and, uh, and thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.